Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the novelist C.L. Taylor, also known as Callie. Callie, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. So, first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. So, um, I'm C.L. Taylor, um, as you just said, and I'm the author of seven published psychological thrillers. Uh, Six of them are Sunday Times bestsellers. Um, One young adult thriller, and I actually started my career writing rom-coms. So, yeah, I think I've sold over nearly nearly one and a half million um, copies. Um, I know. (laughs) Um, and I've been published in 25 languages. Uh, a few of my books have been optioned for TV. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's about it, really. I live in Bristol uh, with my partner and my son. And I've been writing, even though I've been writing since 2008, I've been a full-time writer since 2015. Fantastic. So tell us how you got started. Then, I mean, you know, start really with how and why you wanted to be a writer and then how you got your start professionally well i'm i'm there's a few of us around but i've wanted to be a writer since i was 8 and um it was largely down to enid blyton and her magic faraway tree series it really fired my imagination and i just i wanted to do the same for for other kids i wanted to write books that they could just lose themselves in. And there was an also there was also um a young author around at the time. This was like early 80s called Jane Fisher and she was 9 and she'd written and illustrated a series of books called The Garden Gang and I thought that was incredible, you know, that a 9-year-old could be published. And I thought if she could do it, I can do it. So I sent off um, some stories that I'd written to Ladybird Publisher and received my first ever rejection. And <laughs> I know, aged eight, harsher. Um, and I tried a few more times and again, um, I didn't get anywhere. The letters were really lovely. They said, they said things like, um, uh, next time you submit to us, please ask an adult to type out your submission and please keep the illustrations on separate pages. You know, I'd, I'd sort of bound it to be, together with wool, you know, like a book. Um, so that that was very kind. I did actually look up the person who wrote back to me, but I couldn't find him on the Internet. So I don't know if he's, he's even still alive. But, you know, I was very grateful that he was very kind. But then I didn't, I kind of put it out of my head then. I, I think I, I thought, you know, it's obviously, you know, not for me or I'm not good enough or whatever. And I still loved writing. I carried on enjoying English lessons at school. And I always, you know, I was one of those kids that got praise for their stories and all of that sort of thing. And then I didn't really write anything apart from really bad drunken poetry when I was at university. Um, We all do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's all destroyed now. Um, And then I got to, I must have been in my late 20s and I was watching a program on the BBC where some famous authors had written the start to short stories. And the competition was for writers at home to finish the stories and send in um, what they'd written. And then the authors and a team of writing professionals would choose the winners and you'd appear on TV finishing the story along with the author who'd started it. And I loved the story by Joanne Harris, which was a bit sort of left field um and it really appealed to me so I I wrote an ending and I remember sitting in the pub after work I was working as a web developer at the time with one of my colleagues and you know it was the first person I'd ever shown any of my work to since school and um I showed him what I'd written and he, he thought it was great and you know it was really encouraging me send it in send it in I sent it in didn't get anywhere but it sparked something in me um like a, a, a new found love of short stories. So then I massively got into short stories. Um, I started entering competitions. Um, I started trying to send them into women's magazines because I, from looking on the internet, I knew that women's magazines paid, you know, sort of 200, 250 quid for a short story, 
which to me just seemed incredible, especially if I could, you know, knock one out in a day. But I didn't really have much luck. Um, And then I started to notice that the people who were winning these short story competitions were mentioning um, uh, somewhere called the book, uh, book camp, short story book camp. And I thought, God, they've, they've all come from the same place. Um, I'm going to investigate this place. And basically, it was a short story boot camp online run by a man called Alex Keegan. And I joined up and it was brutal. Um, some of the critiques that I got for my short stories made me cry. And in comparison to a lot of the other authors, I felt really lesser um, that I wasn't good enough. But I started to get better and I started to get highly commended in short story competitions. And then I started getting third and second. And then I got a couple of wins. And then I entered a short story competition into, I think it was Woman's Own competition. And I came second and I won a printer. And for the first time, I got a piece of my um, writing published in a magazine, a national magazine. I was going to say a very big, widely read magazine. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't remember the circulation, but it was at least 300,000 readers. And and that just gave me the biggest boost then. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe I'm I'm not terrible. Maybe, you know, I I have got some skill. Um, But I... I still put off writing a novel because I so wanted to write a novel and I so wanted to have a novel published, but I was really scared. You know, I I didn't want to write it and then find out it was rubbish or send it off to an agent and get loads of rejections and be knocked down. So I put it off and I put it off and I kept doing short stories because I was getting good at those now. Um, And I was earning, you know, a bit of money, not enough to live off, but enough to, you know, treat myself occasionally. And then, um, very sadly, a friend of mine from uh, school who'd always been a massive um, supporter of mine and my writing died really suddenly. Um, we were both 33. She, she had a headache on, uh, on the, the Thursday night, a really, really, really bad headache and went off to hospital. And it turned out she had a brain aneurysm. And by the Sunday, she was dead. Oh, wow. I know. It, and it, to me at 33 i i kind of i kind of still felt quite invincible at that age and it suddenly made me realize that oh my god you know i don't necessarily have all the time in the world to write a book um because anything could happen and that gave me the kick up the bum that i needed to to do it so i had this idea for a uh, romantic comedy with a sort of supernatural slant. And I wrote like a woman possessed. Um, it took me three months and three weeks writing every night after work, every weekend. And then I had it. I, I had my first novel, um, which was called, well, I called it The House of Wannabe Ghosts. Um, and actually it later became Heaven Can Wait. Slightly better. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. There was, I remember some of the feedback that I got from from the agent that, that I finally got said, uh, The House of Wannabe Ghosts sounds a bit like a children's book. And I was like, yeah, yeah okay. Um, but then I began the process of subbing it to agents. And I, I did not know anybody in the publishing industry. Um, there were a few of us online who were aspiring writers um, and we were part of a group called Novel Racers. Um, and we all had blogs. Blogs were a massive thing back then. And, you know, we'd talk about which agents to approach and all of this. But basically, it was the Writers and Artists Yearbook. I looked through um, for the agents that represented the bestsellers in rom-com, um, which is what I wrote then. And I approached six of them. And I had four rejections, two of them personalised, one never replied. And then Darley Anderson, um, who is Lee Child and Martina Cole's agent, but at the time he was also Carol Matthews and Millie Johnson's agent. Um, he replied to me and he asked for the full, and but he wanted it on an exclusive. I don't know if that still happens so much these days, but at the time, it, you know, it was a thing. It meant I couldn't send it on to any more agents. While he was reviewing it, yeah. Yeah. So I sent it off. And uh, about six weeks later, I got a phone call. 
And when he said, hi, it's Dali, my heart leapt because I thought if he didn't want my book, he would have just sent it back. Because in, in those days, you you sent it all in the post. So you'd get a brown envelope and you, you'd not know that your uh, submission was being sent back to you. Um, but there was no brown envelope and there was a phone call and I got so excited and I thought, you know, this is when he tells me that that he wants to sign me. But actually what he did was he picked apart my book. He told me everything that was wrong with it, why it wouldn't stand up against the competition, why it stood no chance of getting published at the moment. But And I was actually in tears. I, I wasn't like loudly sobbing. But I just had tears running down my face because it just it was so painful listening to all of this. And then he said to me, so go away, go and read the bestsellers in the genre, study how they make things funny, study how they make things a page turner and then make your book better. Send it back to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, what? You you you, you're not you want me to send it back to you? And he was like. Yeah, I wouldn't have rung you and and spent my time talking to you if I didn't think <laughs> your book had potential. So, I was a bit I was a bit shocked. I'd not heard of this happening before. I thought it was either a yes or a no. So, I went off and I got Can You Keep a Secret by Sophie Kinsella, which was a massive seller at the time. And I did exactly what he said. I read it forensically. Every time I laughed, I'd underline the bits that made me laugh. If I couldn't wait to turn a page, I'd, I'd sort of put a big ring around, you know, the bottom of the end of the chapter. And basically, I studied her book to see how to write a rom-com that people couldn't put down, that made them laugh out loud, that made them cry, all of this sort of thing. And then I applied what I'd learned to my book. Now, it wasn't copying. I, whenever I tell this story, I say, you know, I wasn't lifting great bits of uh, Sophie Gonzalez's <laughs> book, but it was things that I didn't know, like the rule of comedy, you know, um, things in threes. I didn't realize that until I read Sophie's book and realized that's how she got me to laugh. So then I was able to make my jokes funnier by implementing the rule of three. So, and also there was so much introspection in my first draft of Heaven Can Wait. And a lot of that had to come down, come out because it really slowed the pace. So I sent it back. It took, it took me about five months, if I'm honest, to keep tweaking and keep tweaking and keep tweaking. And then I sent it back. I didn't hear anything for the longest time. And I was just getting ready to approach more agents when I had a phone call from somebody called Madeline Milburn. And she at the time was Darley Anderson's um, head of foreign rights. And she said she'd been on a train to Scotland and Darley had given her my um, revised book to read. And she said she'd absolutely fallen in love with it and it made her laugh and it made her cry. And she'd asked Darley if she could represent me. And Darley said yes. And so I became Madeline Milburn's first author and she was and she was my agent. And she sold my book to Orion and 14 foreign territories. Um, and I've been with her ever since, you know, she's left, she left Darley Anderson several years ago, set up her own agency. Um, and the rom-coms, even though they sold to 14 territories, they didn't sell very well in this country. Um, you know, if I'm honest about figures, the first one sold 5,000 paperbacks. Um, I'd asked my editor at the time, you know, how many do you want to see and, and to see it as a success? And she said, for a debut author, I'd be really pleased with you selling 10,000 paperbacks. I'd obviously sold half of that. Well, even so, 10,000, that's a lot to expect from a debut author. Yeah, yeah, it is. But I, I didn't know what was normal, which, you know, which is why I asked. Um, but I guess 10,000 is, is, is sort of the, the best hope sort of thing. I mean, 5,000 is not, not even terrible, you know, compared to some author stories that I've heard. It's really not, yeah. And I'm not even sure the book was even in the supermarkets. I only ever saw it in WH Smith's. Um, but I, I didn't know so much then. I didn't know about supermarket buy-ins and there was a lot that I was not told. And then um, my second book was an absolute nightmare. It was another supernatural rom-com, but my editor didn't feel that the supernatural slant worked in this book. So I had to completely rewrite it. And um, 
I attempted, because it had guardian angels in it, and she, she didn't like the guardian angels. So then I rewrote the guardian angels as two new characters, and she still didn't like the guardian angels. So she said, let's take out the whole supernatural element of the book and rewrite it. And that was really hard because there were huge gaps in it now. So I rewrote it. And uh, and then my editor said, uh, the sales team would really like it to be a Christmas book. So could you, I know, could you change it from Valentine's Day to Christmas? So basically, my book changed um, beyond all recognition. Um, it became, I'd called it Happiness Ever After. And it became home for Christmas. Um, it did go on to sell 10,000 copies. So, you know, I, I doubled what the first book had sold. Um, and, but then when my agent said to me, um, you know, can you put together three chapters and a synopsis of, of a new book so that we can ask about getting you a second two book contract? Um, my editor said she didn't want any more rom-coms. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, she she said to me, you know, basically go away and write something that's like a Jojo Moyes, because at the time Jojo Moyes was was hot property with me before you, or, you know, write a Richard and Judy book club read. And, um, and you know, how do you write one of those? Right. You know, that, how- that's like saying go away and write a bestseller. Oh, okay. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just basically felt really lost at that point. Um, I, I thought my career was over, you know, two books and then done. And I didn't know how to write a Jojo Moyes book or a Richard and Judy book club read. But what had happened about six months earlier is I had entered um, a short story, well, not really a short story competition, a competition by the Romantic Novelists Association that I was part of. And the competition was to write the first chapter um, of a novel on the theme of keeping a secret. And I'd written this first chapter. I'd had this idea about um, a woman sitting um, beside her daughter's hospital bed and the daughter's in a coma. And the mother has found the daughter's diary that says, keeping this secret is killing me. And so I have the mother talking to the daughter saying, you know, if it's got anything to do with this, squeeze my hand. If it's got anything to do with that, blink or, you know, waiting for any sign that her daughter might wake up um, because her daughter deliberately stepped in front of a bus. Um, and I, you know, it came to me in a rush. I it was It was the first time I have ever heard a character's sort of voice directly into my head telling me the first lines of a story. Um, I don't know if that's because I was pregnant at the time, so it was uh, something hormonal, or <laughs> if it was just, I don't know, just just serendipity. But I I wrote out what this character told me um, about this scene and entered it into the RNA competition, and it won. And when I went to the awards ceremony, the um, the chair Annie Ashurst said to me, "You must finish this novel. Is it is it romantic suspense? You know what is it? We were all desperate to know what happens." And I said, I, I've got absolutely no idea what happens. Um, and but then when I found myself out of contract, I kept thinking about this one chapter that that I'd written. Um, and again, it had a terrible title. I called it the Somnambulist's Daughter. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> that rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I do love a weird title. Um, also, I think I think I had literary pretensions, and what actually I am is a very commercial writer. But um, I, I wrote the rest of it. You know, I was out of contract. I was on maternity leave with my son, and uh, and I just wrote it when 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 he napped in the day, and then at night when I was feeding him, I'd plot what I was going to write the next day in my head, um, and then I finished it, and the book became the accident, and my um, my agent Madeline Milburn um, subbed it sort of far and wide, and it got a deal from. Avon, um, who are an imprint of HarperCollins. And it was, you know, again, it was a pretty small deal, but they have worked magic over my career. Um, and it's down to them that I have had um, six Sunday Times bestsellers and 
and sold a, a million and a half copies and, and and all of that kind of thing. And there's a there's a part of me now that looks back on getting dumped by uh, by my rom com editor and thinks that I was so lucky, you know, because everything worked out so much better than I could ever have imagined. It is strange, isn't it, how you sort of some of those things that feel like disasters at the time actually free us up to pursue something that we might not have done otherwise, which then becomes, you know, uh, the sort of foundation of a career. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really not just me. I, I know of so many authors who've, you know, sort of been down on their luck and, and you know, left a publisher because they weren't happy with them or or, you know, didn't have a contract renewed or whatever. And then they went away and they wrote something else. And, uh, and then all of a sudden their fortunes changed. And I, I say that to people all of the time, you know, don't give up. Perseverance and determination, such huge parts of, of being an author and, and having a career. Well, and do you also think that the, the single chapter that you wrote that then became this book was, I mean, that was clearly written the way you describe it as something that you just felt you had to write. You weren't thinking about commercial aspirations. You weren't thinking about whether it would sell or anything. You were just doing it because, you know, for this competition, but also uh, because you had this character in your head and you felt you had to write it and get it out of you. That's something that I always encourage in people is, you know, write whatever really grabs you and it's, you know, makes you really enthusiastic. Do you think maybe you were, you found that you were just more enthusiastic about that sort of story than you had been about the rom-coms perhaps? Yeah. Um, I think there has always naturally been a kind of dark, <laughs> a darkness to me or a, a darkness to my writing. Because when I was writing short stories, I was I was trying to kind of find find my voice and and find myself as a as an author and as a writer. So I I experimented a lot. I wrote I wrote loads of different kinds of stories. I wrote surreal stories, I wrote dark stories, I wrote lighter women's fiction kind of stories. And um and I think when I wrote my rom-com um it was partly with an eye on the market that I wrote it because I you know I thought Rom-coms um, are, are big, although actually at the time they were starting to fail. I didn't realise quite how much. Um, but I thought that if if I wrote a rom-com with a supernatural twist, that might um, that might sort of reinvigorate the market, or I might stand out, or or something. Although it was a story that I did want to tell. Um, and then yeah, but with with the accident, that first chapter, it was just literally a voice in my head, and I wrote the story that you know, that Susan, the main character, told me. Um, but I've often had that, you know, with I I never set out to write any young adult thrillers as well. And then I just had this one idea and this character that came to me and I thought I really need to write her story. And that was my first young adult thriller, um, The Treatment. Um, and those are the books that I love writing the most, where I just can't not write them. And, you know, regardless of, of sort of commercial appeal or whether or not I think there'll be a bestseller or not, I'm, if, the, if the idea is that powerful that I just have to write it. Because, you know, a book takes up, you know, at least half a year of your life more if you include all, all of the editing and, and whatnot. And you have, to, you have to love it. You have to be so invested in it to get through all of those peaks and troughs and self-doubt of you know of the first draft and beyond um so yeah absolutely write things that you're that you're passionate about that you're that you're driven to write yeah and though i mean those peaks and troughs there is a, a misconception amongst some people who haven't been through it that once you have a contract and you're turning in a book and it's being edited that everything's lovely and <laughs> sweetness and light and that you know you you won't feel bad at any point and that's absolutely as you and I know not the case um i mean just before i move on i, I wanted to say it's also a great irony that you have now been in the richard and judy book club uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but not with your supernatural rom-coms um yes so you mentioned I mean, this kind of relates to a question I really wanted to ask you about, which is premise and concept. 
partly mm. because you are quite unusual uh, in the field of, you know, crime thrillers and what have you, in that you don't write a series. Mm. Uh, you know, your books are all separate, standalone, one-off, if you like, thrillers. Now, you know, th there are advantages and disadvantages to that in terms of commercial appeal, but why why is that? Well, actually, I don't know any, I don't think, psychological thriller authors who write a series. Just because, um, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I think Rachel Abbott may have a returning character in hers. I'm not entirely sure. But most of the authors I know who write psychological thrillers um, do write standalones. Because the the, the nature of, of a psychological thriller is that you put this character in in a situation where they're not entirely sure what's what's going on or you know that's if you have a kind of sort of um issue like mental illness or alcoholism or whatever then there's the other type of psychological thrillers where um it could be like a woman in peril sort of thing a woman on the run or it can be uh the main character is trying to find somebody or uncover the truth about something. And I think because those stories are so big and so tense and so involved, and then at the end you have, you know, you, you have the, the solution, the wrap-up, they find the missing child or they discover that their husband is a serial killer or, you know, whatever it is. Once you've put that character through that journey and and they've attained their goal, but they've also changed as a person and on, undergone an emotional arc. You can't really go anywhere else. Um, I think for for one character to go through something so huge, you can't then write another book and have them go through something so huge, and then you know that would make them the unluckiest person in the world <laughs> to to be constantly gaslit. Make them a soap opera character, yeah, um, or, or whatever it is. So, yeah, I, th I think the nature of the genre um, means that they do have to be standalones. That, that, I mean, that's well put, because th that's a good point, that the psychological thriller is a very specific kind of thriller. Not that they're mm. all the same, but it is a very specific kind of thriller as opposed to an action thriller or a spy thriller or mm. a more straight crime thriller where you might have a detective or, a, you know, a cop solving a murder or whatever. Whereas, as you say, that's not really what the psychological thriller genre is broadly is about. So that, that's a, a really good point. So how do you, bearing in mind then that you have to come up with an entirely new premise and concept and a whole new cast of characters for every single book, how do you go about generating those ideas? How do they come to you? <laughs> Funnily enough, I'm kind of in the position now where I'm, I, I'm at that stage. So I've, I've literally just two days ago finished the first draft of my eighth psychological thriller and in my head i'm i'm thinking okay right what's what's next um but i still i can't think about that at the moment because i have to write a short story as well for an anthology and i literally just had the idea for the short story i i know a lot of writers who will be writing a novel and they'll be bombarded with ideas left right and center i can't do that if I'm writing a book, I am so focused in on that book. I'm so invested in it and the characters. There's no space in, in my mind for anything else to germinate until that is done. So once I've written this short story and that's out of the way, I can start, um, you know, to use Julia uh, Cameron's phrase, um, uh, refill the creative well. Um, what I need to do is is watch films, um, read nonfiction, go out and about, um, just because I do f the 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 analogy of of creativity being a well. I do feel like the well is dry when I finished a book, um, and I do need to fill it up again before I can come up with a new idea. Right now, I haven't got the faintest clue what my next book will be about but it something will jump out at me um and and then I'll think oh you know that's interesting so for for the book that I've just finished now I suddenly became quite fascinated by the area of self-help and how so many self-help gurus are men and they are not 
um, necessarily trained or regulated. And they kind of set themselves up as these gurus, whether it's for dating or wellness or mental health or whatever it is. And then they become fetid, um, particularly by women. And I just became fascinated by that. And, and from there, the, uh, the idea was born about a woman who goes to a self-help um, retreat in Gozo and never returns and, and the sister who starts looking for her. But I never just think about the plot. I also think about the emotional um, state of my characters. So for the book, I thought, you know, what if these sisters had a big age gap, um, like 12 year age gap, and they didn't really know each other? You know, how can I explore that in addition to the whole what happened at, at, at the self-help retreat that made the one sister disappear sort of thing? So it's it's a gradual process. Um, something will spark into my head that I find interesting. Um, and then from there, I'll just keep thinking and thinking and it, and it will just start to grow. And I always ask myself questions, you know, why? Why would this woman go to a self-help retreat? Or, or why would her sister be reticent about trying to look for her? And, you know, and it, and it grows from there. So is there a certain amount of trust, do you think, just in, and maybe this comes down comes back to uh how you you said you wrote you know loads and loads and loads of short stories and stuff to start out with so do you think you have maybe a certain amount of trust in your own ability to at the right time find something like that that interests you that can become a story yeah i think you have to because i think the worst thing you can do is try and force something um you know i i, I was trying to think of a short story idea for for Weeks, because I've known for probably two months that I need to write a short story by the first of August, and um, and I've kept trying to force an idea, um, and they were all very very stale and small, and I just thought, oh god, I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything. And then uh, Friday night it was. I I had finished writing my book, and we'd had some friends round, and some booze had been drunk. And I went to bed that night and I was just, you know, actually, this is where a lot of my best ideas come. Uh, I was just starting to fall asleep and I just thought, oh, I know. And now an image just popped into my head, you know, that is the beginning of the short story. And I just thought, oh, thank goodness. And it's the same with when I write my novels. I often don't know what the final twist is. And I have to trust that it will appear as I am writing the book. Sometimes the twist, I've even put the twist in during the editing stage where I've suddenly thought, Ooh, oh, wow. Yeah, I know that's happened once, but I just thought, oh, if I could just put this extra chapter on the end, often 5,000 words from the end. And I still don't know what that final twist is going to be. I mean, the, I have all the main twists, but I like a little double twist right in the last chapter. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's scary, but I've, I, I just have to, to trust myself, but. Putting yourself under under any kind of pressure and your cre creativity will just dry up. But there is also an aspect there of embracing that fear. And I've I've talked about this with many of the guests on this show that you have to, I think anyway, that you have to have a certain amount of trepidation and fear about whether or not you can pull this off. Mm. to produce something really good. You know, if you don't have that fear, if you know what you're doing and you know you can do this and you, you know, it's fine, I've done this before, blah, 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 then it's, to use a word, you just, it's, it's stale. Mm. You know, you are, if you're not challenging yourself and if you're not, if you don't feel worried about whether or not you're actually going to be able to do this, then I think you're, you're never going to produce your best work. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It does not get, people say to me, surely it must get easier the more books that you write. And I say, no, if anything, I've, it feels like it gets harder. Um, because you, you, I had this conversation with somebody on Twitter the other day and, and I said, no idea that you ever write is as good as the initial idea in your head. And that's really frustrating because you start off with this brilliant idea and you're like, this is the book that I write that I will just be so proud of that will work so well. And then you write it and you're like, oh, you know, 
it's it's <laughs> it, it's like you know you have a Picasso. Well, maybe not Picasso is the right example, but you know a, a Monet or something in your head at the beginning, and then afterwards you've just got a child putting dots on a page. That's you know that's the the comparison between what you thought you were going to create and what you actually created, and what pushes you forward as an author is 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 that drive to create better, to be better, to to more closely match the idea that you had in your head and the and the final product. And every every book you write, you do push yourself more, whether it's in terms of the emotional response of the characters or the structure of the book or the topic, the the subject matter that you're covering, you you push yourself more because writing the same thing over and over again would be boring. And I know that there are some writers who do kind of have a have a bit of a formula and just kind of slot characters and scenarios into it. But for me, you know, I, I joked about this uh, the other day. Um, I sit down to write a novel and, and I find myself Googling, how do you write a novel? Even though I've, <laughs> I've done it 12 times now, um, you, you still feel like a newbie every time you sit down because it's a new story, a new structure, new characters. And, and it's almost like, you know, relearning even though you're not really, but every novel is so different. Yeah, I, I, I'm continually uh, learning and sort of always looking for, you know, I'm a sucker for reading sort of uh, articles on structure or yeah. how, you know, what somebody's process is. I mean, that's kind of what this show is. You know, I just, I love looking at other people's processes, mm. partly so I can go, oh, maybe there's something there that I can, you know, use and, and tweak and pull out and whatever, but also just because I find it a fascinating subject um but i think you're absolutely right that it is that drive to more closely match what you write to the original idea in your head that keeps us all going you know the day that you write something that is exactly what you had in your head is the day you may as well retire yeah uh but that's never actually going to happen so (laughs) you don't need to retire Uh, you know and that's it it never will it's never never going to happen and coming to terms with that making peace with that is i think a big part of sort of maturing as a writer and becoming an experienced writer is realizing oh it'll never be perfect but that's kind of okay and you you learn as well from book to book um flaws that maybe i had in in my earlier books i've i've learned from and corrected um and i think you know regardless that 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 i will never match the initial idea in my head I am with every book I write I do become a better writer and and people say that to me particularly other writers actually um like oh this is your best book yeah you just get better and better and in a way that feels uh, you know a bit like oh god were my first books really that terrible but you know <laughs> I'm I'm now on book 7 or book 8 or whatever and and and, and I'm getting better um but it's true you do you, you mistakes that you may be made in in your earlier novels or things that were weak or weaker, you you correct. And uh, the 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 feeling that my best novels might be ahead of me is is a lovely one. And I'm gl- actually glad that I'm I wasn't one of those authors who got like a six figure deal and forty foreign territories and a and a film deal with my first ever book. Because how do you ever live up to that? Yeah, you know, I'd I'd much rather I think do what I'm doing, which is getting better as a writer, slowly gathering more and more readers and word of mouth and all of that sort of thing. It's I can't imagine how terrifying it is to have a book that goes stratospheric and then have to write a second one when you're just starting out. Yeah, the pressure must be in- incredible. Yeah. So, okay, if you get a lot of ideas. As you're drifting off to sleep, which I, you know, I've heard several authors say that sort of thing. Do you, what do you do? Do you have a notebook by your bed or do you just trust that you'll remember it in the morning? Uh, both. Um, so for the, for the short story idea, I, yeah, I wasn't actually drifting off at that point. I was in bed, but I wasn't in that sort of bit where your mind goes muddled. So I knew I was conscious enough at that point that I would remember it. But if I'm in that sort of drifty offy bit, I do. I have got a notebook by the bed, and um, and I will write in it. I've got, I've got a like 
uh, sports watch thing that ties in with my phone and it's got a flashlight on. So I can turn on the flashlight on my watch <laughs> and, without waking my partner up and, uh, and, just, and just scribble it down. Because there, there are times where I've told myself, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just remember it, I'll just remember it. And then I've woken up the next morning and no, it's gone. Yeah. And, and that only gets worse as you get older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you carry a notebook around with you normally? Yeah. Every, every handbag, there's a notebook. And if for some reason I've taken the notebook out, I will write on anything that I can find. Um, but actually, phones, phones are good for that these days. The notes fo- function in my phone has got loads of little scrappy um, bits and bobs. Sometimes it's, you know, I'll, I'll be out and about. Maybe I've taken my son to the park or something. I'll think, oh, I need to change that, you know, about my novel. And I'll just tap it into the note notes function on my phone um or ideas for titles or you know on the rare occasion i do get a, an idea for another short story or another novel or whatever i'll just put it in the in the note note function on my phone yeah no i, I do the same my notes uh you know application has hundreds literally hundreds <laughs> of notes of varying length some of them are one sentence yeah some of them are you know two thousand words yeah just notes and ideas and stuff and i don't use that exclusively i i do carry a notebook around but as you say sometimes it's really handy to just if you've already got your phone in your hand especially yeah uh to just jot it down there um i want to come back to you said that you read a lot of non-fiction mm. uh which i mean a lot of writers will read non-fiction when they already know what they're going to write about, you know, specifically for research on a particular subject. But the, it sounded like you just read it in general and, you know, you may find an idea in there. Yeah. Um, I, over the years, I found it harder to read fiction, um, partly because, you know, I know how the magic happens. Um, and particularly reading in, in my own genre, I've read a lot of, the same sort of stories and similar voices and and that sort of thing. So when I'm in between books, I like to fill my head with things that I don't already know. Um, And I am really, I mean, I did a degree in psychology and I'm absolutely fascinated by um, abnormal psychology, neurological issues, so I've got a whole pile of books which are all to do with the brain and psychology and unusual cases, um, as well as books written by police officers and um, uh, barristers and all of. Basically, I will buy a nonfiction book as soon as I sort of spot it, and then they, they will just sort of pile up and pile up in in the corner of my study. And then I will just flick through them, you know, when, once I've finished a book, I'll just flick through them and, and see, well, just read them for pleasure, really. And often when I'm focusing on reading, my subconscious will start to work. And that's when the idea will, will start to work its way forward. Mm. Um, so I'll be like, oh, and it may even have nothing to do with the subject matter that I'm reading, but it, it almost frees me up creatively to read something non-fiction mm. no I, I know that i mean i don't read as much non-fiction but i know exactly that phenomenon of yeah you could be reading something completely unrelated but somehow you, it, your subconscious is still working away and you'll read something that just makes you think oh wait hang on yeah and like you say it might be completely unrelated to what you're actually reading but something about it has sparked an idea yeah that you then start to sort of pull at the threads of there's something quite magical about that for reading. It doesn't happen so much with watching TV series, occasionally with films, but it, it does seem to be very related to reading for me. Mm. Um, and sometimes if I'm stuck, if I'm, if I'm stuck on a plot point, if I do read something, it can be fiction. Um, the idea will, will come forward from my, my subconscious. Something about reading just, just frees it up, I think. Yeah, well, and you know, writers have to read. It's uh, <laughs> it's the law. Um, so it sounds like you're a linear writer. You know, mm. you start at the start and and write through to the end. Yeah. Um, which uh, most writers who don't outline thoroughly, I'm an outliner. Just you know, for the record, mo- listeners will know that. Um, but I know I've spoken to many writers who do write 
without an outline and they tend to write start at the start go through to the end and sort of find the book in the writing Mm -hmm. how do you then how much revision do you do once you get to the end of that uh, initial rough draft well i've i've tried loads of different um techniques for writing um over the books that i've written so i've i've tried the hero's journey that was that was my first rom-com the three-act structure um the four-act structure that's that's what i do now um i tried outlining um i read that james patterson recommended that because uh, it makes writing faster but in fact that actually took the total joy out of writing for me um because i felt like you know by the time i would written a thirteen thousand word outline i'd already written the book that's a long outline <laughs> that's long isn't it yeah i did one that was five thousand which wasn't so bad and then when i did the thirteen thousand one for the next book i was like this is just silly um and i did <laughs> pants a book um once and uh that although that was fun that was the worst rewrite of my life of, of my career i think uh not quite as bad as as the home for christmas debacle but um, in terms of the book was all over the place. So I was just like, no, never pantsing again. But also don't want to outline thoroughly. So you have a hybrid approach, I assume. I, yeah, I do. Basically, I have right next to me in my office right now, I have a massive uh, whiteboard and it's split into the four-act structure with um, eight sequence climaxes. And the first thing that I will do other than... So I will start off by by thinking, what is it that my main character wants? What is the goal? Then I think about what is it that the main character needs? How does she change over the course of the novel? Then I think about her flaws um, that will make it harder for her to achieve her goal. And then I look back at her past to see what it is that made her the, the person that she is now. Sometimes I also think about my character's fears because it can be quite powerful in a novel if a character confronts their fears. But that doesn't always work for every novel. The the fears thing is kind of optional. Once I've got all of that, then I will start on the sequence climaxes and I will have different coloured index cards for, you know, if if it's a multi-hand approach. So in the book I've just finished now, there's three characters. So they'll get a different colour index card and um and I'll work out what the sequence climaxes are for at least one character. Um actually looking at the board next to me, I only did it for one character this time, even though it's quite equally spread between the three. Um and then a few random scenes um on cards just placed within the sequences. Um but looking at them, I went quite off piste um with this novel. <laughs> Um, only a few of them actually remained. Um, but so, yeah, it's, it's a mixture between um, a bit. I, I think the most important thing is the thinking at the beginning about the characters, about what they want and need and how they change and how they're going to interact. But obviously, as you write, you get to know them better. Um, you know, you won't have the voice unless you hear it in your head before you start. And literally that's only happened to me once in my, my whole career. Um, you know, the voice will, will grow or take several attempts to come out. Um, but yes, I, I've realized that I don't like to be constrained by too tight a plot before I get started because then there's no magic. There's no moments of, Oh, you know, like, Oh yes, this, this works. Or, you know, I can put this in that ties in with that or whatever. But equally, it does mean that there's moments where I'm just sort of sitting at my desk going, mm, you know, how do I get between <laughs> here and here? You know, um, but I do just write one draft, um, which it, and I, I work quite slowly. I think quite slowly. I tweak quite a lot. If something is wrong earlier in the book, when I, if I realize that I have to go back and fix it before I can progress on. I email my um, work to my email account every day and then I forward that to my Kindle and I'll often flick through what I wrote that day in the evening um, and like, you know, make notes to myself of what I need to tweak the next day. So by the time I get to the point that I've finished the draft, it's often quite, um, 
quite clean-ish, certainly in terms of structure and characterization. Um, so like now, for example, I need to I need to deliver it to my editor on the 3rd of August. I just need to read through and just tidy and tweak, really. There shouldn't be anything major that I need to change. That's interesting. So you revise as you go. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, that's something I must admit that I tend to, if people are, if I, you know, if I'm talking to young writers that are struggling, I tell, I generally tell them not to do that. Yeah. Just barrel, barrel through the first draft and get to the end. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, and I've said this, I say this almost every episode on the show, if it works for you, then, you know, carry on doing it. Yeah. Uh, Whatever works, works. But that is interesting that you do your revisions in the evening the day before, because I know some other writers who do a similar sort of thing. They revise whatever they wrote the day before, before then starting on the next part, but they tend to do it in the morning before they'll start on that day's words. Yeah, no, I I don't know why I've got into the habit of doing it. I think, I think it's because I like seeing the novel grow. So by sending it to my Kindle and being able to flick through it, I get that sense of, of the story getting bigger and that sort of feeling of reward that, Oh, you look, I've made it bigger, but also reading through it. Um, I guess I'm keeping it in my head. Um, and, uh, and, and I can spot things that maybe just need a, a little tweak or a little work or maybe nothing, or maybe I just sort of flick through it and think, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Carry on sort of thing. So it's like a almost like a digital version of the old typewriter thing, you know, where you'd stack your pages up. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think it's a lot like that. Do you send it then to anyone before it goes to uh, your, you know, after you've done those sort of you know, the final tweaks on the whole draft? Do you have beta readers, or does it just go straight to your editor? No, it goes to my editor and agent, and uh, they'll literally be the first people to read it, other than me. Oh wow! Right, so you don't, uh, you know, you don't pass it to your partner or to other writing <laughs> friends or anything, just straight to the editors. No, no, I've I've never done that actually. Well, apart from um, the first rom com, I was part of a, a writers group um, right, right on the internet, and we would all post chapters for critique. So um, I, I posted several chapters there and got people's feedback. But no, since since actually getting a deal, I just totally i the thing is i what makes me lose confidence in a piece of work is multiple um feedback and even you know even just then telling you um about the sort of premise of the of the novel that i've just finished makes me feel a little bit because you didn't go that sounds great um (laughs) (laughs) so you know, because we were. It does are, sound great. Thanks. Um, <laughs> a bit late now. We are. Um, we are. We are fragile creatures and fragile egos, and and I, I hate telling somebody what my story is about and seeing that sort of, oh, you know, look look on their yeah. face. Um, so I'd much rather keep the pool of people that get to see that draft or hear about that draft as small as possible, and then when I get the uh, the edit notes from my uh from my editor you know then i can have a small cry or a strop or get annoyed or you know or whatever it is but then you know work through those feelings and actually do the changes to make it into a better book yeah i think we all go through that i (laughs) my my method for whenever i get notes editorial notes on something is to i'll I'll read them and i hate doing that but i will you know i'll read them more or less straight away or as soon as I'm able to sort of give them my full attention. But then I won't do anything. I won't reply other than to acknowledge I received them. I won't make any notes on those edits or anything. I'll just, I'll read them, absorb them. Yeah. And then I leave it at least a day and sometimes two or three days if, I, if I'm able to before then coming back. Because what I tend to find is that my initial knee-jerk reaction of, my God, these fools, can't they see my genius <laughs> and all that? is tempered over the course of a day or two as I think about it. And eventually, you know, inevitably most of what they say, I think, oh, actually, yeah, now they've got a point there. This could be better or that that would work. Uh, that would be more effective or whatever. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, again, just that self-awareness that comes with writing more and being, you know, having the experience of having published before, gone through this process before, kind of know what to expect. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. The the I I don't know I, I well I do know what it is I'm hoping for when I open my editorial notes it's it's to read 
this is the best book you've ever written, barely needs any work. Um, right, it's perfect. <laughs> Don't change a word. Yeah, that's yeah. what we all want to hear, of course. <laughs> Just a few typos. Um, you know, that's that's what you want. I I do find I hate edits, um, and it's no reflection on on my editors, but I really hate them. And I think this is part of the reason that I only write one draft. I don't like working on the same thing over and over again. I, you know, maybe it's because I started off writing short stories, but I just like to write them, tidy them up, send them off. You know, not go over and over, picking through it, changing bits and Oh, I I just hate it. I hate edits. I completely understand that they make a book better and, and, and they hugely do. But it just, I'm sick of the book by that point. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I just want to move on to, well, basically, I just want to have a break. I want to have a few wings off um, and then move on to something else. But, you know, you hear these stories about uh, successful authors who, who decide that no more edits. And then you see in the quality of their reviews that, that the books are suffering and, um, you know, readers are starting going, oh, they've gone off the boil a bit, oh, you know, not as good as their first books. And I think to myself, is that because they no longer let themselves be edited? So despite how much I hugely dislike the process, I can't quibble with the fact that it produces better books. Yeah, that, that's an absolute truism that I have spoken about and written about in the past as well. Yeah, is everyone needs an editor, no matter how successful, no matter how much of a genius editors or, you know, producers for music or whatever. Yeah. Somebody to be able to go, actually, that's not very good uh, <laughs> and, be, and be taken seriously is necessary. We, we all need that. We're all guilty of writing something and thinking, this is brilliant. And then if we were honest with ourselves and looked at it, Again, you know, in a month's time, we'd go, oh, actually, it, it's not that brilliant. Yes. But as you say, the, the bigger you get, the harder it is for people, through a sense of self-preservation for their careers, I'm sure, the harder it is for people <laughs> to be able to say that because of that initial reaction we all have yeah. to notes and feedback where we go, no, you're a fool. You're absolutely wrong. You know, everything, <laughs> this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, well, let's start to wind down a little. One of the things I want to ask you is why you write under initials, because the psychological thriller genre is populated by many, many female writers, and most writers adopt initials in order to sort of appear genderless, as it were. So I'm just wondering why, why you chose that. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't actually my decision. Um, so my rom-coms were written as Callie Taylor, and when we went on submission with uh, the accident, um, me, uh, my agent and I decided to go under Cal Taylor, which um, is quite genderless. Mm. And so, yeah, originally all, all of the replies were like, I think Cal has done a good job of whatever. And then when we got signed up by Avon, they said, how would she feel about using her initials? What are her initials? And I said, by initials as CL. And, and I was like, yeah, no, that's fine. And they said um, that it was to distinguish uh, the psychological thrillers from my rom-coms. But I do partly wonder if it was to do with the success of Before I Go to Sleep by S.J. Watson. And, and if maybe they thought that there was something to using initials. And now, interestingly, as, as you said, back then, so S.J. Watson obviously is a man. He's Steve Watson. And I think they called him S.J. Watson because um, he has a different publisher to me, by the way, um, because they wanted to hide the fact that he's a man because Before I Go to Sleep is written from a woman's point of view, where which I found really interesting because, you know, George Eliot and, you know, female writers from history had to pretend to be men in order to get published. And it's actually happened more recently that there are a lot of male writers writing psych thrillers with their initials um, because they don't necessarily want the predominantly female readership to to know that the author is male necessarily. It is a strange turnaround, isn't it? Mm. Very. As you say, you know, historically, yeah, it was always the other way around. And uh, and I, I've contemplated doing it myself. I haven't yet, uh -huh. but I 
I have never ruled out, you know, sort of depending on what kind of book I'm writing. I always say to my agent, look, you know, if, if they want to put this out under a pseudonym or under initials or something, I'm completely open to it because just from a purely commercial point of view, you're right that there is a certain, you know, there is a certain segment to the audience because I tend to write almost all of my uh, fiction features female lead characters mm-hmm. um, and are written from their point of view. And yeah, there are some people in the audience who don't want to read uh or at least they think they don't want to read a man writing from a woman's point of view and i understand why i i totally get it uh but the only way around that is to adopt a pseudonym i think the only time it really matters is if it's done badly you know because well yeah (laughs) yeah because 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 normally when you know reading any book i don't think about the author's gender um you know i just get lost in the story and the characters unless there's some jarring phrase or description or, you know, whatever. And then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, this is a woman writing a man. or This is a man writing a woman. But you're also, by that, by that point, you're already reading it. Yes. You know, you've already picked it up. And I think it's more, the concern is more about just getting people to pick up the book in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let, let's finish off with some of our standard questions then. When you sit down, to write at your desk what are the parts that you really look forward to writing you know what do you really enjoy doing oh i i love writing scenes of dialogue um i you know even though description is is important and building atmosphere and that sort of thing i love writing uh arguments or reveals through dialogue um anything where it's sort of two people together um and there's tension there and they have they 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 have different goals for that scene so there's there's tension automatically um those are the sort of things that i like to write um and you know there's always a few scenes in a book where you're like oh i can't wait to to write that one um but but you're never tempted to leap ahead and, and write that, you know, no, in advance. Because then, because if you write all the the nice all the, all the nice bits, then you've got to fill in all of the slightly more dirgy bits that you don't <laughs> enjoy as much, but are still important. And that's the next question. Ah, uh, so what parts do you dread coming to write? well, um, I actually more and more find the sort of self-reflecty bits quite emotionally draining um in this in in the book that i've just finished now the character who goes on the self-help retreat is um in quite a dark place emotionally and i i always think of writing it's it's like method acting but method writing even if you're writing in the third person about someone's emotions, you have to channel those emotions. You have to feel those emotions in order to make them feel authentic on the page. And that is really exhausting. You know, it's it's the one thing about writing rom-coms that is good because there's a joyfulness to it. But when you're writing somebody who's in a dark emotional place and you have to go to a dark emotional place to write it, it's exhausting. Um, so I did feel a bit like, whew, brace myself i'm going into a dark place now um but you know if i tried to do it any other way it it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked and and it wouldn't have been believable to the readers but um yeah there's there's a reason i think why every idea that that i've had recently for a short story has got a kind of comedic slant because i think my brain's like just give yourself a break funny All right. Finally, what is something that you have uh, read recently where the writing itself really impressed you and why? Oh, it's not so recent, but it stayed in my head. Um, uh, The Lost Man by Jane Harper Um, absolutely blew me away. To me, it stands head and shoulders above most crime novels. And it's hard to pinpoint why. I mean, yes, she, she describes the Australian outback so perfectly you can almost feel the dusty sand in your mouth and the sort of cloying heat in your in your nostrils and your throat but it's more than that it's about 
It's about the people and making them feel real and, and their relationships with the people around them. The mystery is almost secondary in, in that book because it's about a family and it's about, um, it's about rejection and it's about loneliness. And I just, I, I was absolutely blown away. And, uh, that was her third book. And I enjoyed her first book, The Dry, as well. But the, the third one, The Lost Man, was just beyond. So, yeah, hugely recommended. All right. So, Kelly, where can people find you online? Okay. So, my website is cltaylorauthor.com. I'm on Twitter um, at Kelly Taylor, um, Facebook at Kelly Taylor Author, and Instagram cl taylor author and also youtube cl taylor author if you can't remember any of those just go to cltaylor.com and they're all listed there i'm all over the internet basically yeah no that's the same here i always say to people look just go to my website and it's all linked from there yeah yeah <laughs> all right and what work of yours what one work would you recommend our listeners check out if they haven't read you before oh um <sighs> Well, there's a part of me that goes, read Strangers, because that's the most recent of my books. But the book I am most proud of is The Fear, uh, which is about a woman who was groomed by her karate teacher um, as a 14-year-old. And years later, 30 years later, she uh, she sees him grooming another girl and decides to stop him by any means. And uh, that that is the book that I'm most proud of, I think. All right. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Cheers. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, can take part in Q&A episodes and more. Go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. Now see you next time.